Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to an experienced CTO that now helps other tech leaders and organisations with their tech challenges. Our guest, Chris Clark, tells us about his exciting journey as a tech leader and the lessons learned from these previous adventures. So let's not delay. Let's get Chris into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, Chris. Welcome to CTO Confessions podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, TC. Great to be here. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Okay, so my name is Chris Clark. Um, I'm currently uh, branding myself as the scale-up CTO, but formerly um, for uh, about 10 years, I was um, co-founder and CTO of a company called Talis, which was an ed tech startup that we built over a decade and uh, sold um, uh, in 2018 now um, to a US publisher. And um, I guess I'm just here today to share a bit about my my journey um, during that time, what I learned and, um, you know, go from there. So, Chris, the company that you're working for at the moment, you kind of mentioned that you're in this uh, scale-up, the scale-up CTO. What's the problem that it's solving the market? Well, TC, it's not really uh, it's not really a company I'm working for. It's a, a, a brand that I'm using to do um, a little bit of CTO consultancy um, for uh, clients. So those clients, some of them are kind of pre-revenue startups, need a bit of advice, some of them are kind of post-revenue. Um, I'm, I'm working with uh, an accelerator as well to give advice to, to young companies. And what, what I'm trying to do here is really um, uh, just impart some of the, the lessons that I've learned over the kind of 10 years I spent building my own company um, and help uh, help those people avoid um, some of my mistakes and, and some common mistakes that that we see. Um, I guess from, from my perspective, you know, I'm... Uh, a bit of a recovering CTO, I guess, and I'm kind of taking some time out to do, you know, work with lots of different people, um, kind of get into lots of lots of companies and work with different problems. There's a bit of a bit of a break from the kind of ten year cycle that I've just been through as a as a founder. Yeah, um, you know, just take some time out, work with a wide range of people, come up for air, and see what's about really. And you know, maybe that will lead to my next long term gig. Maybe it won't, but you know, it's a lot of fun along, along the way. That's excellent because I love this idea of having some space to uh, to rest and I kind of get, I guess in a way deepen the learning that you've acquired over the years, you know, and then to kind of springboard again off that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really important when you're thinking about the CTO role and uh, you know any C level role in a business. You can't. It's not a kind of role that you might do for one, two, three years. Really, to have a big difference, um, you know, strategic difference to, to a company, you're really committing to five or 10 year cycles and you're taking the company from one place to another. And, and most companies, you know, that takes more than one, two, three years. And it's a big personal effort. Um, you know, you need to be fully committed during that time. And so, you know, for me, naturally, after that time, you need to have a bit of a break and a bit of a think about what it is you really want to do next and, and, and where you want to go. I mean, 
I think lots of CTOs take on interim roles um, for that same reason. They might go and you know solve a very specific problem for six, 12 months. But for me, I wanted that kind of breadth of um, yeah. experiences rather than just focus on on one client. So I found the scale up CTO uh, kind of brand, if you like, and it's a good way of doing that. And you know, I've been involved in you know helping people think about you know, due diligence, uh, helping people assess, you know, tech stacks that maybe they've had built by outsourcers. I've been involved in mentoring, which is great working with the CTOs. So just yeah. a really good way to, to kind of, you know, I've done what, you know, I've done things my way uh, in my company, but you know, there's, there's more than one way to do things. So it's good to experience what other people are doing and the problems yeah. that they've got and try and help them with them. I love that. The kind of cross-pollination, you know, gather uh, new information and new learning from other places. And, so coming back to Talis then, because you, you had quite a long stint there, you know, and it sounds like mm. a really exciting kind of journey in, and uh, from the conversations we had offline. So what were your kind of uh, key takeaways from Talis? What did you learn there? What, what defined you as a leader? Yeah, I, I learned an awful lot there. And I, I kind of, um, I had a kind of number of roles at Talis before eventually CTO, which was the, the position I held for the longest. So I, I kind of uh, came in, I did a, uh, some kind of, Program management. I did some product management in that role. I'm a I'm a techie by, um, uh, you know, kind of by trade, if you like. I, I you know, my, my degree and my early experience has always been as a as an engineer. Um, mm. But I actually held a kind of number of hats, and I feel that I suppose my my main takeaway from the time at Talis was, you know, we built a company that was employee owned, didn't have any um, external investors, and it it just taught me an awful lot about culture and the turn from being an individual contributor into a catalyst for others really and creating right. an environment and a, a space where your success is really about how you support others and, and grow them. So I think, you know, when I've recruited or worked with or, or, or spent time with CTOs, you generally find those kind of two camps. There's the CTO, which I call the kind of Superman uh, CTO, the one that wears his underpants on the outside. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they like to be the, the kind of smartest tech guy in the room. You know, they have a team of people that are doing things the way they, they think should, things should be done. And I think there's a place for that. And I think that's hugely valuable in the very early stages of a company when, you know, you, you literally have to set a direction and do yourself. But for me, I think companies quickly outgrow that kind of CTO. And I think for things to scale up and go from, you know, very high functioning, very successful, small group of individuals to the next stage, you have to kind of take the turn, which is there's only 24 hours in a day. Even if you're awake and working for all of them, the amount of work that needs to be done outstrips the, the, the amount of time you have. So the only route really is to think about, well, how can I assemble a group of great other people and be a catalyst to them doing better than they would have done ordinarily on their own? So you have to step away from making all the decisions, doing all the fun stuff, maybe in terms of coding and engineering and, and having people clear up behind you, which is essentially what the, the superhero CTO does. To being someone who thinks, well, how do I create high performing teams? How do I set the direction, but not get too involved yeah. um, and, and get out of their way? And also knowing when to step back in, when that's maybe gone out of control or maybe things aren't going right. And I think, you know, that is a, a, a much longer term view it can be a lot more frustrating because sometimes things will go slower than they maybe would have done if you know you'd have done it yourself but yes. it's really the only way if you're going to scale up and that's really was the basis of um what i i learned at talis and of course when i was on the, the front end of that journey um I, I was the guy who wanted to be the smartest guy in the room i was the 
you know, the superhero, um, maybe. Um, others might, might disagree. Did you wear your underpants on the outside then? No, That's no, the that was, there, was a, there was a HR issue and I had to stop doing that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think I quickly learned in the first year or two of, of doing that, um, that that just doesn't scale. And it got the first project done really quickly and really efficiently, but at what cost yeah. to, the, to, the, to the company culture? So, you know, I had a great executive team you know uh, that I was part of at that company um a couple of individuals in particular that kind of you know rounded out my experience and, and really we need to make that turn from high individual contributor to to catalyst and and yeah. that's the biggest takeaway for me from there so Chris I'm really curious around how you uh, convey your intention of being that type of leader because I imagine uh, some people want that people to kind of jump in and be that kind of superhero leader how, how do you kind of communicate that to people this is what my intention is this is what I want for you yeah I think it starts with the with the hiring process really so I mean we had a really different hiring process at Talis that we developed over a number of years and I think um, it, you know it starts with getting the right kind of people in post so uh, we can talk in quite a lot of detail, as much detail as you like about the whole process, but I think we always looked for people who were problem solvers and aptitude rather than specific technologies. So quite often, you know, we'd have a stack of technologies, whether it was Node.js or Angular or whatever, for a project that we were hiring for. But we'd almost ignore those technologies largely and we'd look for good problem solvers. And we knew that if people were great engineers, they would pick up the technology that we're using. Um, easily within the first you know few months and actually it was it's harder to change the behavior of an individual than change what they know you can teach people things facts you know syntax you know technology but you can't it's really hard to change an individual's behavior so we really prioritized um behavioral traits kind of um in the in the initial hiring process and the way that we did hiring as well, we didn't outsource it to a recruiter like most tech businesses do, where they get a recruitment agency to come along and throw them 100 CVs. We actually really took ownership of that process, like from the very start. So hiring managers or, or, or you know, um, me, for example, for, for a lot of the tech, tech uh, roles, you know, we would really have to write that role description. We'd have to, we understood that we were selling to candidates mm. in, that, uh, in that process as much as we were sitting back and passively being sold to. And we look for individuals that um, wanted to take ownership, were, were great problem solvers, great working teams, that were a real great cultural fit first and foremost. And then we'd look at technical skills to kind of see where were they on the, you know, kind of junior, mid-level, senior tech leads, where were they? That was kind of less important to us than, do they have the right um, approach and do they fit in culturally and can they work with us? And, you know, will they stand up and say to me, I think you're wrong, Chris, this is maybe a better way of doing it. You know, I'd massively prefer that. Would they work outside of their comfort zone? We, we took ownership and, uh, of the process ourselves. We understood that we were selling to people more than they were selling to us. Love it. And we tried yeah. to create an employment brand that would attract the right kind of candidates. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's kind of one of the important things. That's where it all starts, really. You have to find like-minded people. You have to find people that kind of, you know, want to stand up, make a difference, um, you know, be involved, work like and act like a business owner rather yes. than as an employee, a small cog in a big machine. And that employment brand, because this is a conversation I had with another tech leader around this kind of thing. So how do you kind of attract people to the organization? Because we were speaking to a CTO at Amazon 
And mm. they were saying it's really easy because Amazon's a brand and it's got a whole yeah, kind of story yeah, yeah. around it. You know, in fact, they've probably got their, their gravity well in terms of attraction is probably more like a black hole, you know, just yeah, sucks yeah. everything in. Um, how do you do that as a, as a kind of smaller company or starting out? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in this kind of uh, uh, post-pandemic days, it, it might be different. But how, how we did it in the, in the pre-pandemic era was, I mean, we were based in, in Birmingham in the UK. And uh, it wasn't, there was quite a lot of agency businesses around that area, but it wasn't a tech hub like London or, or maybe even, even Manchester or kind of East Midlands for gaming. Um, and we basically got out to every meetup. We got out to the universities, um, you know, not, not, not just me, but, but mainly others actually in the business. Um, yeah. And we encouraged, we actually created um, um, a space in our offices where meetups could happen. We bought pizza, we bought beers. We, we got out there and spoke to people, not, not from a cell we're recruiting necessarily, but we got out there. We did presentations for meetups, um, you know, and shared a bit about what we were doing. So that's kind of like number one. And um, so, you know, you kind of get out there. So people, you know, oh yeah, I met a Talis guy at a meetup. So maybe I didn't meet the CTO, but I met an engineer and he, he said some interesting things about what they were doing. So that's kind of like brand awareness, if you like, just getting out there and, yeah. and being part of the community that you're in. Um, and that's much easier when you're doing that on a kind of local scale than, than maybe post-pandemic where you have to do that on a much more global scale. It's easier for a smaller company to make an impact there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we did a bunch of stuff around, uh, we, we had a, an engineering blog where we shared, you know, a lot of stuff about, you know, how we saw the right way to do development was. Um, we actually, uh, at one point we had our own, um, event called Codelicious where it's a free <laughs> event, kind of a little mini festival where, you know, you could come and get a, a great gourmet burger and listen to some, uh, tech talks. We had a guy from Twitter come down, one, oh, one wow. of the engineers on TweetDeck, uh, you know, and a bunch of other kind of non-Talis people. And then we had a kind of short five minutes afterwards about, you know, maybe what, what were we doing with along a similar theme to this, this speaker. So again, you're kind of associating yourself with, um, you know, kind of others without trying to overly sell, if you see what I mean. You're not trying to push it down everyone's throat, but you're just being seen as being a, uh, a contributor to the community. So it kind of gets you well-known. And then I think one of the best selling tools you can have to candidates is, is other, um, you know, other engineers that enjoy working with you. So if you've got a great environment, you've got great projects that your engineers are working on, they enjoy doing it. They're going to tell their peers, um, you know, so it's no good me standing up and going, oh, yeah, Talos is a great place to work because I'm bound to say that. But mm -hmm. you know, what matters more is that interaction during coffee at a meetup or interaction in the pub where your own staff are saying, well, you know, yeah, I've been at Talos for a year. It's been a great experience. I'm working on this. I'm enjoying it. And, and But that has to be genuine. So you actually have to provide that that environment for those people to go out and have those those conversations rather than trying to prime them. Um, yeah. So it all comes back to, um, you know, uh, I guess, uh, how, how you treat people. Do they feel supported? Do they feel empowered? Do they feel that they can make their own decisions? Do, do they, even if they're a junior programmer, do they feel like that, that they're on a team where they can stand up and go, I don't understand why we're doing this. Is there another <laughs> way we could do it? Yeah. You know, give, giving them ownership, trying to push them, celebrate mistakes, you know, don't, don't, don't punish them. Yeah. Um, we all make them. Um, you know, and create a safe space for people to, to grow into, really. How do you get that trust for people to be able to do that? I mean, employing people is, is one thing, the right people are going to want to do that. How about the incumbent, the people that are already there? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it doesn't always uh, work out golden, as you can you can imagine. <laughs> Ten-year period, we've had ups and downs like everyone else. But yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, you can say all that, but people really judge you by what what you actually do. And I think um, and I think there's also um, you know, as a, as a CTO, you can let things run that maybe you think that um, you know are not the right direction. Um, but you have to know when to call them as well. And you have to do that in a respectful way with people. So it's, it's as important to let people run with an idea and, and make their own mistakes and then come to the right outcome as it is to gently take to one side and go, I think you're going a bit in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. But not yeah. do that in a way that, that costs them personally yeah. um, so that they, you know, they feel like they've been called out in front of people. So, but I think ultimately people judge you as a leader on, on kind of how you conduct yourself you know, um, how respectful you are. And I think if you've gone through a hard time with an individual, um, so I can I can think of times when we, we did have hard times with some people. I can think of times when, you know, some people we had to let go because it, it wasn't the right pace for them. But I can, but I look back on, on those. And if you do that in a respectful way, um, I've had people like um, email me like a year later and said that was absolutely the right decision for me to, to leave. And I know you you guided me towards that, but now I'm doing much better. Um, and, and I'm really grateful. And, and I think that to me says that, you know, you've done your job really. And you've, yes. you've, you've backed that up with, um, you know, actions rather than, than just words. So that's right. Um, yeah. it, it's a real delicate balance though. And some, sometimes you get it wrong as a leader and you have to learn from your own mistakes. And, and yeah, and, you know, I'll put my hands up. I'm sure there's people out there would say, well, mm. you got it wrong for me, Chris. And, you know, I'd say, well, yeah, just like we, we, we've all, you know, made errors. Um, so, but I think, um, you know, I think that where that's worked really well, where people stayed with us for a long time, and there were some people that stayed with us for the full duration of, of that company um, and still work there now with the new owners, is that those individuals generally early on, we might have had a rough patch and we solved that rough patch together and we came through it and then they trust you and yeah. they remain really, really loyal. And I think that's the same in any business. It's not just technology. Yeah. Um, that's, that's great. I, I love this idea of uh, building the trust by, by, by demonstrating. It's the only way you can do it. You know, the opportunity when things do fail, it's an opportunity to embed that, that trust, you know, and to create that space of, uh, of um, you know, collaboration and, and uh, honesty. The other thing that we kind of mentioned uh, offline was around kind of agile, the agile piece, because mm. this is something as you were kind of growing in, in Talis, you know, the, te the teams were growing, the product was, uh, uh, you know, being developed and also being refracted from what I understand, you know, from some mm. legacy code. What's your kind of um, learning around, or uh, what's the wisdom that you'd like to impart around agile and the kind of impact it had on your teams and your leadership? Yeah, so I guess we were... Um a relatively early adopter of, of, of Agile. I mean, Talis Education, which is a business that we built and sold, has always worked in uh, with Agile like methodolo methodologies. But uh, the precursor to that, we, we had a, a group of businesses, the precursor to that, won't go into the boring detail, but where Agile um, development, Scrum, was something that I introduced to that, that group um, probably around 2008. So relatively early. Of course, there were people doing it before then. And um, we, we, the products that we built were SaaS products um, uh, from those days. Um, so if you, I don't know, for those of uh, those of your listeners who, who can remember, you know, 37 signals and their operating system for, for how they built product was kind of some of the mantras that we, you know, um, listened to, enjoyed. They were building early SaaS products through Basecamp and others. Um, and we liked a lot of the way that they, they thought and did things. Mm. So, you know, we always tended towards... Um, smaller teams uh, that were empowered to make decisions. 
we work really hard on the process. And I think later on as well, um, we work really hard on understanding like the confluence of like products and technology and user experience and how a creative tension between those kind of best serves the user, if you like. So mm. if, if any one of those in the mix is kind of too strong, you have a product that's biased towards maybe um, you know, too much in one direction. So we've all worked on projects where the, the, the tech team gets their own way all the time and you have an overly complex product that's yeah. difficult to change. <laughs> yeah. More often, um, a lot of maybe your listeners have worked in situations where technology is not listened to enough and you end up with a product that's got a lot of technical debt and is difficult to evolve and expensive. Um, you know, the, the right balance is somewhere in the middle, um, you know, uh, and, and that's the same for, you know, the product and the, and the UX elements of that. So we ended up with like an agile system where we we kind of got all three of those disciplines to work well and be respectful of each other and not be um, subservient or, or, or um, uh, to the other, um, mm. which I've seen before. Um, and ideas were freely shared and discussed at the right time between those. And that enabled us to all commit to what we were trying to build. And then when that came into the kind of tech team's time to implement, you know, that was kind of smooth runnings really in, yeah. in a lot of cases because they they understood the point of view of, of others um, and could kind of get on get on with the work. And there was a problem that could then be be discussed um, as peers really. So um, I guess that, that was something that took us a while to get right, I think, but I think we, we really did get it right um, and it's something I see a lot of other companies struggle with and things get chucked over the fence a lot. So product will have some requirements. They'll chuck them over the fence to UX. UX will chuck them over the fence to dev. And then there's no coordination really between yeah. those three and feedback loops. And what you end up with at the other end isn't really what product envisaged at all at the start. Um, so I think we, we encourage that to be much more collaborative. Brilliant. Um, I, think, I think in terms of like specifically on technology, we had... We had some kind of um, uh, red lines, if you like, about how we went about building things. So one of those was kind of code for managing, deploying, monitoring, and scaling. It's just as important as functionality. So you know they have to live alongside functional code, and you know you've got to be careful about the compromises there. But that made that it really easy for us to do tens of releases a day to scale very easily beyond the kind of some of its parts. You know we were still quite a small team doing that but we really prioritized um you know those kind of mantras and the kind of some of the things out of the 12 factor methodology for building SaaS apps yeah um and that allowed us to be really agile in how we built new things because we did we really kind of attacked technical debts um i suppose one of the other takeaways from from the agile process i always said to teams that you know if you were working on a new area or a new app or some new functionality i'd always prioritize attacking uncertainty in that so yeah. don't worry about the things that you know about so if you know how to build the search part don't start with that start with like the ai problem that you don't know how to solve and attack uncertainty until you've got no uncertainty um, because then you will you know don't don't tend towards the things that you know because you know you can do those you know how to do that so attack uncertainty until you've cracked it um and sometimes that that, that kind of works going back with the product and ux thing that sometimes that uncertainty would be we're actually really certain about the requirement never mind how to do it and you'd have to do experiments sometimes with users and you know technology sort of have a role in that how could they quickly stand up you know ui experiments so we could go and do a b testing with users or wow. you know things like that so that was a big thing for me if everything's certain it's easy to to plan out and build and yeah. know the cost so attack uncertainty until we're at a point where we feel we can commit 
Love it. I love that idea of uh, going for the thing that you really don't want to do, you know, uh, or rather make it the thing you want to do. Because uh, I guess from a business perspective, that's the risk. That's the risk mm. that's kind of going to come and catch you out in the end and, uh, and and go for it, you know, go for the jugular, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and on the topic of Agile then, what didn't work? What, what were your learnings around uh, the way, in, you know, because you did it early on? Mm. What didn't work? Uh, that's a good question. So, we, we always had trouble with integrating separate QA teams with Agile. So, so for me, um, in an in a Agile iteration, the definition of done is that it's releasable, that you can literally ship it to users. And we always had trouble integrating uh, QA into that process, a separate QA team, which you know many, many um, uh, tech groups do. And in the end, we actually did away with QA as a separate function completely. And we actually gave uh, responsibility and ownership to engineers that that kind of QA and, and product managers actually that the QA was was kind of done as a, a partnership between them because I always felt that traditional QA teams are always by necessity they're like one release behind um, you know the, the where the development is and if yeah. you've got a development sprint where you, you're trying to get everything done for the sprint release if that's how you do it and, and it goes, then it's not done until it's QA'd and it's not releasable and shippable until it's QA'd. But we, we never got on top of um, having a separate team be integrated into the, the, the sprint enough that they could QA things quickly enough to actually then have them done, if you like. Um, so we, we moved away from that. We didn't persevere with trying to do that. And we actually changed the role of the engineer to incorporate responsibility for QA and the product manager as well. They're responsible for sign off. Um, now, I know plenty of places are, have, have, have integrated QA successfully, but I, I don't think we ever did. And I think that had some massive benefits. We were able to move quicker, but, you know, occasionally I think there would have been value in having, um, uh, you know, a separate QA team uh, to come in and do that. But we, we never got on top of that. It never worked for us to incorporate into Agile. Uh, I suppose the other mistake that we made with 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 Agile was, you know, we had this... this um, uh, company culture that everyone can get involved in everyone else's business and I think the other thing that we we learnt during this was that we started off by saying having like full disclosure in teams so we'd have these long team meetings where you know details were discussed in minutiae about upcoming things that were a month away and I, I really started to question like the usefulness of that and if you're an engineer whose job is a detailed job is it is it useful for them to worry about uh, a feature that might never happen because yeah. we're still talking about whether the feature is even valuable and they're sat there worrying about how to write lines of code for that feature how to do the form validation or whatever minute detail it is when we might never even get to the feature in that form so yeah we kind of went from this we didn't deliberately try and suppress that but we made that optional so what we did is we had this kind of if you think about the life cycle of how a feature ends up like on the on the desk of a developer to implement, if you rewind three months when we're really re discussing whether the feature's got merit, whether it's got value, we, we do a progressive disclosure as time went on. And we'd understand at each point what, what level of detail we're talking about. Are we talking about 10,000 feet, in which case we don't care about the form validation? Yeah. Are we talking 1,000 feet, in which case we care about, in general, the architecture about how it's going to get done? Is it... Um, you know, is it a React app? Is it, you know, are we using Elasticsearch? But we're still not worried about the form validation. Or are we doing it next week? In which case, we really care about the form validation. Yeah. And we try to introduce people at those kind of three levels appropriately. So 
the engineer that was going to end up building it, they might go to a meeting like once and have seen the general idea of the feature, but they understood they weren't discussing the form validation yeah. until it came that we're going to do it next week and we're asking for an estimate. So yes. early on, though, we kind of went, well, everyone can go to everything. And what happened was that everyone was just constantly in meetings and then <laughs> arguing about things that just weren't relevant for yeah. the point in the life cycle that we're at. So yes. that was that was definitely a mistake and it took us a while to, to get into a rhythm with that. Um, I think the other thing that we made mistakes with um, is we really struggled to to understand early on about how UX integrates with Agile process. And it was really only when um, one of our colleagues, we recruited, we, we'd been through quite a few different UX designers and it'd always been a frustrating process. Some experienced, some not so experienced. There'd always been clashes with the development team. And it wasn't really until um, we recruited um, uh, head of ended up being head of um, head of user experience. We recruited a, a particular individual who told us how it should be, um, and really thought about it. Thought about user experience more holistically as user experience is every interaction your customer has with your business, not mm. just uh, go away and draw me some nice wireframes and then we'll argue about them. Yes, and um, you know we only really got that right and how it integrated into the. Um, development team and the product teams when we actually found someone who had run their own agency in the past and was looking for um, a, a bit of a different role from running their own business and was willing to come and work for us uh, and be part of what we were doing that was able to stand up and go you're kind of doing this completely wrong and rather <laughs> you don't know how to manage user experience people right you know, let, let me let's go on a journey about um you know going from it being about interfaces and wireframes to it being about your brand is a brand that delights and excites individuals yeah. because every interaction is important. Yeah. Um, but previous to that, we, you know, me in particular, you know, did a bad job at integrating user experience into, into, into our products uh, because I thought I, I knew a lot of things and it turned out I did not know a lot of things about that. So. <laughs> yeah. Great learnings. I mean, I love this idea of uh, uh, an external expert coming in and telling you, you know, and you and you're willing to listen to that as well, you know, uh, to kind of hear 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 that out and and then taking on board the stuff. And I, and I guess, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a uh, there's lots of learning from this to, to be fully kind of open uh, to allowing other people to kind of share their perspective on how to go forward. Coming back to Talis and um, the kind of product development. Uh, mm -hmm. And that kind of technology aspect of it. What 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 were the key, kind of key things that struck out that you kind of taken forward? The key things for me was that we were um, a company of about fifty people, and we had some really smart techies working there, and we wanted them to do, you know, kind of out outsized things for the size of the company with the technology. And quite early on, I suppose the the system that I um, I thought how I thought about this from the point of view of um, you know what what technology choices should we be making was that we should be we should be doing exciting things and we should punching above our weight but we should stand on the shoulder of giants we're not a giant we're not facebook we're not google um you know we're not microsoft even i'm, I'm not a microsoft person i'm, I'm a, a open source guy and we're not going to create we're not we're not here to create technology much as as engineers we'd like to create technology for other engineers we're here to serve our users um so it's about doing great things with technology that already exists. So we need to be conservative, but not outdated. We need to stand on the shoulders of giants and we need to do things in the right way. Um, and by being a little bit reserved sometimes on like the tech stacks that we use, we can do exciting things with them. So 
we had this rule about when we're kind of like thinking about architecture and thinking about um, you know what technologies to choose or how to do something is you know hack and use is a bad place to go look for the, the next greatest thing because I kind of lost count in that time about like how many how much fluff and hype there is about a new way of doing something or a new front end framework or a new database and you'd look into that and you think that's great you drink all the kool-aid um <laughs> and you say oh yeah we really should be doing something with this but then two years later those technologies are dead you're in um, a dead end in terms of who you can hire to work on on that tech i mean countless times we interviewed engineers that were moving from companies where they liked the company they liked their job but they were in a dead end tech because that company had made a choice that had led them into a dead end, um, you know, about uh, on the technology they based everything on. But it's too late, you know. They're in a, you know, they're in a cycle. They're not going to throw away that technology just because, you know, they made a choice and it's gone out of fashion. So, we always try to be about two to three years behind the bleeding edge of, of stuff. So we'd want to wait and see whether technologies could survive that hype curve before making a bet on them. And yeah. some great technologies fall at that kind of. They don't cross the chasm into the mainstream, if you see what I mean. But they were great technologies, um, but they don't cross the chasm. So we'd always wait for tech to see if they could get that early majority um, adoption before we'd select them. And, and that takes a bit of discipline, especially when you've got young engineers and they want to, you know, boil the ocean on kind of you know, all the most exciting stuff. And, you know, and they want to they want to do it now. And you have to go, well you know, that might not make it and that might lead to a dead end. So we've got to just be a little bit conservative because we are only 50 people. We're not, we haven't got thousands of, of developers. Um, and, you know, we don't want to end up in those cul-de-sacs. So, so it was always, we need to be conservative, but not outdated. We need to stand on the shoulders of giants and recognize that we're not going to invent that technology ourselves. We need to do a really good job with what other people have done and build on that. Um, and, and we should do things in the right way. Uh, you know, 12 factors, a great, a great playbook when you look at that. Investment in DevOps is a great playbook, you know, and, and kind of, but ultimately we're there for the end user. We're there to solve their problems. Um, hopefully we can do it in a fun way and, uh, and the right way along the way, but that, that's what we're there for um, to serve those, those, uh, those users really. Brilliant. I love it. That's good. That's great. I'm great learning there. It sounds like Talis was uh, really quite a defining uh, moment in your leadership and, and ideas that you're taking forward so taking those ideas forward and the company that you're working sorry the consultancy that you have at the moment you know scale up cto um i mean how does that how does that work when you work with a client what yeah i mean typically the projects that i'm doing they're kind of discrete projects rather than like ongoing i do have one client i do a lot of ongoing work for but um typically the client will have a problem like you know the ceo will say well you know I've, I've, I'm not sure if my CTO's up to it. Like, can can you can you come in and give me give me a steer on that? Or, you know, um, we've got this architecture, but we're we're not sure if it's fit for purpose. It's going to scale. Or, you know, I don't know. We're we're looking at an exit. Um, you know, what what are we going to be asked questions about? Um, what what are we going to what's going to come up in due diligence? What do we not know? So generally, they tend to be kind of discrete engagements where there's a specific problem in mind. So I think my approach is always, you've got to spend some time listening, getting to know the players in all of, whatever that problem is, whether it's a, a people, a perceived people problem, whether it's a tech problem, whether it's a, we don't know what we don't know problem. You've got a budget to spend some time to just listen and get to know the different perspectives in the room. So, you know, of course the CEO will tell you what they think and what they think really the answer is. And, um, you know, but, when you actually get into it and you actually talk to others and a wide range of people around the problem, 
you know, it, often the pitch is quite different. So you've got to spend and invest some time to get a picture first. Yeah. So that's why I always, that's how I always approach those and kind of, one of the great benefits of like engaging me is that I'm kind of independent. I don't have an agenda. I'm not, you know, I don't know the politics and I'm not interested in the politics of the organization. And I can kind of give a, an independent view on, on what I think is really happening. Um, and, you know, also just use some of that experience from mistakes that I've made or, um, you know, or, or things that we've done in the past that have gone well to say, well, you know, this is, this is maybe the direction this is going in here and, you know, what you've got to think about. And, um, you know, so, but, but really that all starts with, with kind of listening and not just listening to the person that's engaged you um, because clearly they, they already probably think they know what the answer is. Um, so you've got to, you've got to get a more rounded perspective. Yeah. So sometimes that's spending time with engineers and trying to, you know, see what they think and, you know, or product managers or, you know, wh whoever is around that problem. Um, yeah. Cause that'll tell you a lot really. Yes. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, your agenda is very different. You're holding the space for what they want, what they're clearly defined, what they want, and and going from a, a more of an objective thing without all the politics kind of holding you down. You know, because yeah, I can imagine uh, that yeah, that's a real kind of uh, uh, opens up the a potential for the organisations and the resources that they already have there. You know, mm -hmm. to have those kind of honest conversations. So, um, and as part of your work, what's the kind of common thing that keeps uh, tech leaders or CEOs in tech companies? Up at night. Um, I think I think uh, uh, a lot of um, businesses are. What I find people aren't focused on the right problems. They've got too many things on their on their plate, and they're trying to do well at all of them. Yeah. And I think they. I think businesses need to be realistic about um, the the number of things they can do at once. And sometimes they might want to do a lot more than they can do, but you should do less things but do them better. Yeah. And you shouldn't overstretch people. So. More often than not, when I get a CEO going, oh, I don't think my CTO is up to it. When I actually look at what the CTO is doing, he's run ragged and he's got too many things to do. Um, and, you know, that, therefore they're spread too thinly. Um, you know, I see uh, companies as well make a common mistake. They do a lot of things, but they can't afford to do all those things. So they do all of them cheaply, yes. which means none of them are any good. And I think it takes real discipline to look at the set of things you could do and pick the ones you're able to do and the ones that are going to make a big difference. And there's a, there's a few ways of, uh, there's a few tools that, that kind of, I suppose I've picked up on uh, ideas of other people that I've kind of latched on onto over the years about um, how important something is to the organization. So there's this idea of core and context, um, which is Jeffrey Moore's idea. He's um, a kind of business consultant, if you like, but he says that, you know, the core of your company should be about things that give you competitive advantage and everything else is context and you should look to outsource that, get someone else to do it. So for example, like every, every business in the world that employs people has to run payroll. Okay. But do you get competitive advantage from doing your payroll slightly better than your, your immediate competitors? No, well that's no. context to your business. So outsource that, get someone else to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're a software company, you know, developing software is something that will give you competitive advantage over your competitors. So don't outsource that, like own it, do it better and understand how to do it because it's the beating heart of what you do. Yeah. Um, to the amount of, you know, tech companies you see, and they're like, well, yeah, we should just outsource all of this to, you know, and that, that's fine to get you started, but you have to, you have to bring that back in house because it's literally your, your competitive advantage. It's the core of what you do. Yeah. So that's a common mistake where they go, well, we need to go faster. Therefore we'll just outsource everything. And you generally go slower. So, yeah. you know, that, that's kind of one of the, one of the things, I, I guess one of the other um, 
other other techniques that was kind of uh, taught and demonstrated to me by by our CEO and and chairman at, at Talis was this kind of idea of um, leadership turns and how you go from being an individual contributor to, to a catalyst and you have to make those turns you have to kind of change your behavior so that's another one I see quite common uh, with with CTOs actually that they're they're failing that they fail to identify that they need to make a turn from being that that superhero into the into the catalyst uh, model and they're, they're they're damaging those around them by doing that right. uh, and I have seen CEOs do that as well where they're just in everyone's business too much of the time um, and they need to let maybe they need to let their CTO um, give them a bit of space you know give them the space to, to flourish um, right. so so that's another one um, we talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, the um, crossing the chasm um, which is oh, I forget you know that's, that's Clayton Christensen um, and that's like the uh, product technology life cycle you know innovators early adopters then there's a chasm then you've got the mainstream majority and, and laggards so that's another good one where I, I can think of one engagement I did recently where where there'd been a product developed and the guy was just way too far along that um, uh, product technology life cycle adoption curve and he was trying to work out how to move his product to like the early majority when he hadn't even got any innovators on board and he didn't really understand the different needs and stages of customers along that life cycle and about the different trade-offs you might make for your, your technology or for your products you know uh, if it's something you're familiar with yeah innovators put up with bugs you know functional emissions because they want to be part of something new that's right uh, but they're a very small group of people and they can help like get your product off the ground but you need to then move on to like those early adopters who are you know, still risk takers, but not maybe as risky as the innovator. They need a bit more support. And then you understand that most products then fall down a chasm and never go any further. And to get to that early majority, you need to focus on a different set of things. So some some of the clients that I've worked with, they, they just think they're much further along that curve than they actually are. And they need to go backwards and think about, well, you know, where are my innovators and early adopters? Um, so, you know, that's that's another one that's, that's quite, uh, quite yeah. common, I'd say. What tips would you give for aspiring leaders out there that are kind of listening to this podcast thinking, I want to be a tech leader, I want to be a CTO? Um, I think I would um, say to people, have a long, hard think about uh, the reality of that. So you speak, to, I, I speak to, I've spoken to loads of people over my career, engineers who, you know, they want to be the CTO, they want to be the, a technical leader. And the reality of doing that job is maybe less glamorous than it seems from the outside. And I think one of our uh, one of the things we did really right at Talis actually was to give people the opportunity to step up to a leadership position and try it and see see it for what it was before committing to actually doing that over the long term. And I would say about 50% of those people stepped up into that position, decided it wasn't for them, and then we gave them a soft landing to go back to maybe a senior engineering position. Brilliant. And in most businesses, what would happen in that circumstance is that there isn't a soft landing. They don't do well in that leadership position. Um, businesses have promoted good um, engineers, you know, into into management positions, and then found out they weren't good at management. The only the only uh, solution for that uh, person was to go get a job somewhere else. Yeah. To maybe take a step back, or or so we always try to do it in a very soft 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 way to say, look, we'll give you that. Um, Give you that permission on a fixed amount of time let's do three six months and then let's reevaluate how it's gone for everyone did you like it did did it work well for the people that you were managing did it work well for the business and then if it, if it you know if, if we don't want to continue doing that there's everyone understands there's a soft path to go 
you know, back to what you were doing. The other thing that we did, we, we didn't actually um, make a financial distinction um, between uh, a senior engineer and, and a tech lead. They were just different jobs, but they were, they were more peers. And the people that went into leadership positions weren't necessarily the best um, at doing the things that they were going to manage. And, and just recognizing that management isn't this kind of, mm. um, kind of uh, gold star that the best people get. It's actually a different discipline. Yes, um, and I think that's something that's really overlooked in all kinds of engineering jobs, whether it's software engineering, whether it's civil engineering, whether you know whatever it is that just because you're a good engineer, um, somehow you're going to be a good manager, and somehow managers are, are, are more superior to, to engineers. Everyone wants to be the manager, so I think we didn't make a, a distinction um, really in terms of um, you know we try to t- treat those two roles as kind of peers rather than necessarily. Um, you know, kind of one's superior to the other. Um, and I think, I think so, so what I would say in general is to, to anyone thinking about going into technology leadership, thinking about, you know, do I want to be, is, is that the right path? Is that the right fork for you to take? Is it because you think there's status in that or is it because you, you're, you're excited like, like I was when I was doing it about, you know, the success of others, creating the environment, um, you know, learning from mistakes and actually creating something better than you could do on your own? Or is it because you want to have the status of being, you know, I'm CTO or I'm, you know, VP engineering or I'm CEO. And I think find somewhere where you can try that and there's a soft landing. Brilliant. I like it. Yeah, that's great wisdom. I I love the idea of people trying stuff out and then, uh, but but there is a way back, you know, the the bridges aren't burnt, as they say, you know. that's that's very enlightening. Um, and as we come to the full stop of the podcast, what's your kind of key takeaway that you like to offer the men and women tech leaders out there? I think the key takeaway is that the real value in your job is not about um, what you do next week or next month or or even next year. You have to kind of view your role as a five to ten year um, cycle, and you have to think about at the end of that ten year cycle, what, what does success look like? Does it look like you know? Is it an exit? Is it is it a particular you, you know, you know, is it culture? Um, is it, um, you know, are there particular goals that you have for that 10 year cycle? And you have to view your job as um, a much longer term play than, you know, the meeting you go to next week or the advice you give someone next month. And you have to build towards that five to 10 year cycle. And for sure, you know, it won't come out perfect and it won't come out exactly as you envisaged it, but dream big over that five to 10 year window and and see how far you can get to it and just understand that you know you're only going to get to that by creating the environment for others and being a catalyst you're not going to get to it by you know working 90 hour weeks annoying everyone around you (laughs) um you know you're only going to get to those things on a five to ten year horizon by taking people on a journey with you so it's kind of about that journey really Uh, and and focus a little bit less over you know, problems that are tomorrow, next week, next month, and and focus a bit more further out. Brilliant. Great advice to finish on. Thank you for your time, Chris. It's been great having you on board, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I love speaking to people who have been deep in the trenches and come out the other side with lots of wisdom to share. It sounds like Chris's time at Talis was a particularly wonderful leadership development curve with some great outcomes to boot. So what were your key takeaways? These were mine. Number one, build trust by demonstrating it. Lead respectfully, even in the hard times. In fact, mostly in the hard times. 
create great experiences within the company so people talk about it and share it down the grapevine externally and internally. So you build up that trust, a great foundation for all organizations to build their success on top of. My second key takeaway is about attracting the right talent to your organization and picking from the best. And the best is not necessarily about tech skills. It's about the right behaviors and the ability to take ownership for the work at hand. And in the context of that, I love Chris's way of hiring. They owned the process. They went to town on being creative about how they attracted the right people to the organization, using university events, creating meetups at their organization, engineering blogs to attract discussions around technical subjects, mini festivals within the organization, and also sharing their experience of working within the company to attract people to wanting to be part of that culture. I thought this was wonderful. And my third and final key takeaway is around the essence of Agile in addressing the risks of product development and eliminating those uncertainties within the development path to de-risk the project. And there were many, many other takeaways from this session. So please share yours and let me know what you think. So thank you, Chris, for your time. Thank you for sharing your key points in your leadership and learning journey. I really appreciated our time together and the lessons I learned from you. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.